Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. We're really excited to be digging into the Psalms again. Let's pray, and I'm going to be praying the words of an old prayer. It's a prayer confession from the Book of Common Prayer, and it goes like this. Almighty and merciful Father, We have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much in the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone the things which ought to have been done. And we have done things we ought not to have done. But you, O Lord, have mercy upon us. Spare us who confess our faults. Restore us who are repentant acknowledging your promises and declaring what you have said to all mankind that in the Lord Jesus Christ, our sins can be washed away. O most merciful Father, for the sake of your Son, Jesus, we pray that you would help us to live good, godly, righteous, and sober lives to the glory of your holy name. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So we're in Psalm 32, and um, we did an intro last week, and then now we're kind of going to be digging into individual psalms. And this particular psalm is a psalm of wisdom. It's a wisdom psalm, and it asks one of the most important questions you can ask. And the question is, who are the truly blessed ones? Or that word could be translated happy. Who are the truly happy people? How can we be truly blessed or happy? And this is a really important question to ask. Maybe the most important question you could ask, right? We're thinking about wise questions about life. One of the most important questions you could ask is, you know, what makes a person truly happy or blessed? Is it being rich or is it being famous or is it being um, young or is it being retired or is it being single or married or powerful or attractive or an influencer? You know, who's truly blessed? Who's, who's hashtag blessed, right? You know, that's an important question. That's one of the most important questions we can possibly ask. Or to put it another way, how do we find true happiness? What would we need to have to be the kind of people that are deeply happy in the most profound way? And you guys know that the Bible is actually unique amongst world religions and philosophies in how much care it puts into human happiness. You know, if you look at a lot of philosophies and religions out there, 
they, they pale in the amount of care that they give, how much concern they give to human happiness. When we read the Psalms, the Psalms are all about seeking happiness. All the way throughout, it talks about the things that will diminish your happiness, things that will increase your happiness. Even in the saddest songs in the Psalms, there's a path to joy. That's what the Psalms are about. And so where do we find real happiness? Well, this Psalm tells us in the beginning. It uses the word blessed, but it can be translated happy as well. And it gives two beatitudes here. Look at the first verse. Oh, and you do want to look at it. If you guys don't have a Bible, open your phone, Google uh, Psalm 32. We're going to like track right through it. It's way more fun that way. If you don't do it with me, then it's like, it's like me trying to describe a sunset, but you got your eyes closed, right? You want to look at it together. This is super important. So anyway, Psalm 32, Google it. You'll find it. I'm in the ESV, but it could be any translation. But the Psalm tells us in the very beginning where happiness comes from. Look at verse one. Blessed is the one or happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. True happiness, guys, is found in being fully forgiven by God. And he describes it a few different ways. To have our transgressions forgiven, to have our sins covered, to have our sins, our our iniquity not counted by God. He's not counting them. He's not keeping track of them. If that's you, then you're blessed. And you're blessed not just because you're going to avoid punishment for your sin. You're blessed, the Psalms would say, because you get God. It's not just to avoid punishment, but you actually get God. Psalm 16 says that God's presence, in God's presence, there is fullness of joy. And in his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And having that full forgiveness gives us that access to God. God is where all happiness comes from. God is the fountain of every lasting pleasure. Every goodness is found in him. He is the center of joy. And any joy that we have in this life are merely kind of offshoots of him, you know, reflections of him, a little sparkle of his glory or happiness in something we find in the world. But the source is him. So how do we get in this state of happiness? How do we get in this state of full forgiveness? Well, the end of verse 2 tells us, it says, And in whose spirit there is no deceit. This psalm is going to tell us that the way we get in this happy state with God and, and get fully forgiven is by dealing honestly with God about our sin. Dealing honestly with God about our sin through confession and repentance. So this psalm, Psalm 32, is a psalm about repenting of sin. Now you might assume, be a reasonable assumption, that a song about repenting of sin would be a sad song. Wouldn't you expect it to be a somber, a sad, a serious song? Did you hear what David read, though? This is not a sad song. This is actually a super happy song about repenting of sin. It's happy in the beginning. You know, he talks about blessed are the people that have this. And then it's happy at the end. And then in the middle, it tells you how to get that happiness. This is actually a happy song about repenting of sin. David wants to teach you in this psalm how to be truly blessed and happy by dealing honestly with God about your sin. On the top there, do you see in the very beginning, it says a mascal of David. That's actually in the original. Whatever title you have, like blessed or the forgiven, that's not in the original. But where it says a mascal of David, that's in the original. That word mascal is actually a, it's based on the Hebrew word to instruct. So this is a psalm of thanksgiving. This is a psalm about instruction. He wants to instruct us how to find happiness through repentance. And he does it, it's really cool, through a testimony. You notice in verses 3 through 5 that he's actually giving a testimony of how he repented and how he found uh, happiness in, in the Lord. 
The first thing David wants to show us here is that unrepentance or our sin makes us miserable. Sin makes us miserable. Unrepentance makes us miserable, doesn't it? David here says, look, I tried it. Look at verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. Yes, sin makes us miserable. Would you agree with that? Sin makes us miserable. That word selah there at the end of verse 4 is probably meant to be like a pause of reflection. And so I think it's worth selahing a moment <laughs> about the misery of sin and, and thinking about the ways in which sin makes us miserable. Look at verse 3 through 4. He says here that sin makes us, can make us miserable physically. You see that in verse 3? He says, my bones wasted away. Unrepentant sin, sin we don't repent of, can have disastrous effects on our bodies, can it? And on our health. Perhaps you've seen that in yourself. You've seen that in people you know. We're both body and spirit. You know, there's some creatures that are all body, like a you know, lizard or something like that. It's all body. And there's some creatures that are all spirit, like an angel. But we're this kind of unusual, like amphibian. You know, this weird amphibian where we're both spirit and body. And they're both deeply connected so that when we are spiritually apart from the Lord and unrepentant sin, it affects our bodies. It harms our bodies. Sin also makes us miserable emotionally. Look at verse 3 again. He says, through my groanings all day long. Um, guilt of sin, uh, it, it violently tears against our souls. You know, the guilt of sin violently tears against our souls. And it can cause deep psychological effects. You know, there's, there's some psychological conditions that come from the guilt of unrepentant sin. And I know, as I mentioned guilt, if you not normally go to church, you might be thinking like, okay, that's just what I thought this place would be about. It's about wallowing in guilt, and it's about, you know, kind of dwelling on guilt. Guys, remember, this is a psalm about how to get happiness, and the gospel is all about how to get rid of your guilt, okay? But you have to see it first, and that's why it's important to look at sin here and see what it is. Sin also makes us miserable spiritually. Look at verse 4. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. We know summer heat, right? Living here, Riverside County. Like, we know what summer heat's like. And he has this description that spiritually, unrepentant sin drains you like summer heat. This last summer, I was saying to Tosh, my wife, I was saying to her, like, I come home from work, and I work outside all day. And um, I came up from work, and I'm like, man, maybe I need some blood work or something. Like, I'm tired all the time. There's got to be something wrong with me. And she's like, well, it was 137 degrees out there, you know? It drains your, your energy, right? It saps your strength. This time of year, we feel like we could do anything, you know? We're out in the yard doing all kinds of stuff. We're, like, super productive. August comes around, and we just, like, curl up and want to die. Well, guys, unconfessed sin does that, too. It saps our strength spiritually, Right? And you might want to ask yourself if you're always tired, you might want to think about, it could be physical, it could be all these different things, it could be spiritual, you know? Sometimes we confuse weariness and tiredness. Tiredness is physical, right? Weariness is something in the soul. It's something spiritual. Sin makes us miserable, guys. Unrepentance is self-inflicted misery. It's fighting our own joy. That's the crazy thing about it is, you know, this psalm is all about repentance and receiving joy. When we live in unrepentant sin, when we won't let go of a particular sin, we're fighting our own joy, guys, because God is our happiness, and sin keeps us from him, from enjoying him. 
Notice that David also describes his conviction of sin as God's hand pressing down on him. This is part of the makes us miserable spiritually. Look at verse 4. For day and night your hand, God's hand, was heavy upon me. If you're a Christian, God will not let you remain happy in your sin. Can anybody attest to that? You notice that, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, everything, you know, when you kind of dwell in sin and you live in sin and you continue in sin, you always get busted, right? You know, you'll have a neighbor that's not a believer and they seem to be completely happy and content in it. And you go like, Lord, why me? And the Lord would say, well, that's not my kid. You're my kid. So I'm not gonna let you dwell in sin and be happy in it. He says here that when he was hiding his sin, he was miserable in it. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. And guys, that's the most merciful thing God can possibly do for us when we won't let go of our sin. The best thing he can do for us is make it entirely miserable. Make us as uncomfortable as possible in it, right? And that's something he only does for his kids. He lets the world have it, but for his kids, he'll make us incredibly uncomfortable. The theological term for that would be conviction of sin. It's more than the conscience because it's done by the Holy Spirit, and it's just a deep discomfort when we won't let go of our sin. And maybe this is a good point, too, to mention. There's a difference between conviction of sin and condemnation of sin. I've got a little chart for that up here. Both conviction and condemnation, they both feel terrible, but they're different. And I think it's really important to just, like, take a moment to see the difference here. So what's conviction of sin? Conviction of sin is, is from God. It's from the Holy Spirit. It leads to life because it draws you back. It invites you to come home. It ends in joy, like this psalm talks about. It makes us want to change. It leads us to our new identity in Christ. Conviction of sin brings a specific awareness of a particular sin to our minds. It causes us to look to Jesus, and it's a blessing. And that's what we're seeing in Psalm 32 here is conviction of sin. This is a very good thing, even though it feels very terrible, okay? Condemnation is different. Condemnation is from Satan. Why do I say that? Well, if you're a Christian, Romans 8 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so if what you're experiencing is condemnation, that is not from the Lord, it's from Satan, it's from the enemy. It leads to despair, see the difference, instead of leading to life. It ends in sorrow instead of joy. It makes us believe we can't change. Anybody been there? It leads us to believe we can't change, that's condemnation versus conviction, which makes us want to change. It leads us to our old identity and sin, so it makes us think about our sin as being our ultimate identity. It brings a vague uncertainty about sin, this is something you can definitely relate to as a believer or even before you were a Christian, that you had very vague notions of what was right and wrong. You're like, maybe this is wrong, or I feel kind of bad about this, but maybe I'm just prudish. Oh, maybe I'm being a little too hard on myself. It's just like this vague notions of sin, whereas conviction brings very specific awareness of sin. Um, condemnation causes you to look to yourself, and it's a burden. And so both conviction and condemnation feel bad, but conviction, guys, is God inviting us, his kids, to leave our sin and return to him. And so I'd ask you this morning, if you're holding on to a particular sin that you won't let go of and you won't confess to the Lord and you won't forsake, are you ready to come home? Are you ready to stop fighting your own happiness? You know, are you ready to return to blessing? And you might say, well, and if you're very hardened in your sin, you might say, well, you know, not quite yet. I'm not done enjoying it. And I would just say, Really? There's one thing I know from this psalm is that if you're truly one of God's kids, he is not going to let you have a good time in your sin. Whether that's greed or anger or sexual sin or bitterness or any other kind of disobedience to God, he's going to make you miserable, and he does it because he loves you, 
He wants to free you from it. And so it's important to see sin's effects there. It makes us miserable physically, emotionally, spiritually. We can also learn something about sin from the three words that he uses for sin in here. Did you notice that David uses three different words for sin in the psalm? He uses the word sin, he uses the word iniquity, and he uses the word transgression. And in poetry, this is called parallelism, where you have one line, he talks about sin, the next line says transgression. He's saying the same thing in a different way with a slightly different word. But what's cool about these three Hebrew words for sin is each one has a little different flavor. You know, each one has a different kind of bitterness to it, okay? And I think it's, it'd be helpful to go through these words to have a, a more in-depth understanding of sin. The study of sin is homardiology. Homardiology, it's the study of sin. It's a, it's a branch of theology, and it's, it's important study, not, not to wallow in our sin, but to help us to seek true happiness, right? The reason why we want to have a deeper understanding of our sin is so that we can repent of it more thoroughly, right? Just like a surgeon studies the look of cancerous tissue so that when she's in surgery, she can cut all of it out of her patient, we want to have an in-depth knowledge of our sin to repent of it thoroughly, right? So this all has a purpose. This is a, a purpose is joy. And it also, guys, when we see the depth of our sin, one of the other things it does that's really helpful to our souls is it makes the gospel pop, right? Which is what this psalm is about. When we see our sin clearly, and we see the forgiveness Jesus gives us in the gospel, it makes the gospel pop in a way. It's not just like, yeah, of course he loves me. I mean, who wouldn't? You know, you go from that to going like, man, look at the depth of my sin, and yet he loves me. Then the gospel pops, right? So what can we learn from these different words? Well, sin makes us less than God meant us to be. We can see that from the Hebrew word sin. It's chatha, and that's the Hebrew word for sin. And what it means is, it means to miss the mark, okay? This word sin, the Hebrew word there means to miss the mark. We were created to reflect the beauty and glory of God. When we sin, we fall short of the glory of God, whether we're sinning by um, omission, by the things we don't do, or commission by the things we do. Like that, the Book of Common Prayer that I read earlier, where it says, we have left undone the things which ought to be done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And when we do those things, sin makes us less than what God's designed us to be causes us to miss the mark. We, we become less loving, less patient, less courageous, less gracious, less joyful, less alive than God created us to be. That's sin. That's missing the mark. Secondly, our sin distorts our hearts to worship other things, and we can see that in the word iniquity. So the word iniquity in this psalm is different. It's a different Hebrew word than the word sin. It's ava, and it means to be twisted out of shape, okay? So instead of missing the mark, it's, it's about being twisted out of shape. Just like a bone that's dislocated from its joint is painful and causes all kinds of tissue damage, sin causes dislocations and twisting in our hearts. We end up having twisted views of God, twisted views of others, twisted views of what life is about, twisted views of ourselves. It causes us to have distorted worship, to, to love and worship things other than God. That's iniquity. That's the twisting of awe. And this word iniquity shows us that we fall short of the glory of God's sin because we're twisted on the inside, it, that we have insides that are not right. Like the Book of Common Prayer says that in the devices and desires of our hearts, we're not right, right? Sin distorts our hearts to worship other things. The different words that are in here, one other thing it shows us is that sin is actually hating the one who loves us most. And we can see that in the Hebrew word transgression here. 
So this Hebrew word transgression means something different than sin, different than iniquity. It's the word pasha, and what it, transgression means is willful rebellion. Okay, do you see how they always have like different tastes? Are you tasting the different parts? You know, it's a bitter taste, but it's good, right? To know what these different words mean. And so this word pashat means, it means willful rebellion, that we rebel against God who made us and loves us. So we miss the mark, sin, chatha, because we're twisted inside iniquity, ava, but that sin that we do is intentional rebellion, pashat, transgression. So that even though sin enslaves us, we're still doing these actions willingly. They're intentional. They're rebellion. It's actually hating the one who loves us most. And so you see how they all have different feels. Like we miss what God's meant us to be, and we've got this twisting on the inside, and that we're, this is an act of hatred towards the one who loves us most. And this is all against the God who is so abundantly ready to forgive us and receive us back. This is what the Lord says about himself in Exodus 34. He says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping his steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And so I'd ask you, if there's a sin you're holding on to, you don't want to repent of, uh, living in sin in some way, are you ready to come home to the God that loves you like that? David shows us something about how to return. If you're ready to return, he tells you how to return by describing how he returned in verse 5. He wants to show us what he did. And so verse 5 says this, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. It's beautiful. It's, once again, this parallelism, he's describing something in the same way. First, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you. So he acknowledged the ways that he falls short of God's beautiful commands and what he's made him to be. He says he didn't cover his iniquity. So repentance doesn't just involve confessing the act that we did, but the twisting inside, right? The heart behind it, the reasons why we did it. Remember, iniquity means that our hearts are twisted. We have a twisted heart behind the actions. Repentance is uncovering the reason why we sinned. When we repent, we don't just confess the act that we did, but what we were worshiping and what we love more than God that made that sin so attractive. Take something like lying. You don't lie just because lying's fun. You lie to get something, right? People lie for different reasons. Some people lie for human approval. I'm going to lie because I think you'll think more of me, because you'll think I did something that I didn't really do, or whatever, or the, the converse. It's human approval, you know? That's a thing that you love and you worship more than God that made that sin attractive. Other people lie for control, right? They don't really care what you think of them, but they want control. And so they lie for reasons of control. Some people lie for reasons of comfort. Just want to be left alone, you know? They, they come up with excuses why they can't do this and they can't do that. What do they want? They want comfort. They want ease. Do you see how it's important not just to confess our sin of lying to the Lord, but what is the twistedness inside? What was the thing we worshipped and loved more than God that made that sin so attractive? And that's what he's saying here when he says, you know, I did not cover my iniquity. What does that remind you of? I did not cover my iniquity. What do you, what do you think of in the Old Testament when you think of covering sin? Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking of Adam and Eve, right? That they covered themselves. They, they were like, we're naked, and they covered themselves with fig leaves, and they hid from the presence of the Lord, right? And what needed to happen? 
What needed to happen was their sin needed to be uncovered before the Lord so they could be properly covered, right? Remember, God covered them. He killed some animals and he put the skins and they were actually covered with blood, really, over their sins so that it was truly covered. Guys, when we repent and uncover our sin down to the heart, we, we do it so that the Lord will cover it properly with the blood of Jesus. Next, he says, I will, I will confess my transgression. Remember, transgression is the internal act of rebellion that when we confess our sin, we're confessing to the Lord that we have personally offended against him, okay? When we sin against God, it's not like when you were speeding and you got pulled over, okay? I have a patrolman, you know, he pulls you over. It's nothing personal. If he's taking it personally, there's something wrong, okay? Because it's not personal. He shouldn't come up and he shouldn't be like, how could you do this to me? The way you drive on this road. How? You know, he doesn't do that, right? Because it's, the sin isn't against him. The sin is against the state. It's against the rules. It's against society, right? But it's different when we sin against God, right? Because it's personal. It is against him. It is intentional against him. So, you might ask when we talk about confession, I think it's one of the logical things to think about is, what about confessing to other people? You know, sometimes us as Protestants, we're like, I don't need to confess to any other person, right? You know, because you're thinking about, oh, that's Catholic or whatever. But actually the Bible does talk about confessing to other, other believers. There's a couple times when you definitely should. You should when the sin's against them. You should certainly confess it to them. And you should if it's a sin that's a habitual sin that you're really having trouble overcoming. You should actually rely on the body for that. Because you could say, I got this, but you've said that 90 times, right? You don't got this, right? You need the body. We need each other. Um, we shouldn't be trying to live without the body, right? It's very common in our culture that people think, you know, I could be a Christian, not be attached to any body of believers. They're living out in the world as if, like they're a severed hand. Severed hands? I don't know. Minutes? Hours? Not going to last long, right? Not in any kind of healthy way. A Christian apart from a, a, a church family is a Christian in danger, right? So sometimes we need to confess our sin to one another. What's the Lord's response though? This is so cool. So you have three through four. He's like, when I kept silent about my sin, you know, my bones wasted away and I groaned and, I, you know, he's in a terrible state. Sin's making him miserable. Verse five, he says, then I acknowledged it. I confessed it. I didn't cover it. And what's the Lord's response? This is great. What's the Lord's response? Look at the end of verse 5. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. It's that simple. Say law that. Right? Let's have a say law there. That was his immediate response. You confess, you're forgiven. It's incredible. Did God say to him, well, you know, talk's cheap, and we'll see. You ever had anybody do that when you confess your sin to him? Talk's cheap, we'll see. Does God do that to us? He doesn't, does he? Does he go, you know, there's going to have to be a probationary period, right? There's going to be consequences. You're going to have a probationary period. Does he give us a cold shoulder in the silent treatment? He doesn't. Guys, the Lord's immediate response to our repentance of sin is verse 5, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And I just want to say to you parents, give that to your kids. Please give that to your kids. You know, when, when you confront them with their sin and they repent of their sin, could you do that for them? Don't give them a cold shoulder. Don't give them the silent treatment. Don't give them any sense that you remember it. Give them that. That's what the Lord gave you. And say, married people, give that to your spouse, right? Give that to your spouse. And I'd say to the rest of us, let's give that to everyone, <laughs> right? If somebody confesses and, 
and repents of their sin. Um, I had a situation with one of my kids where, you know, they had confessed their sin and we had dealt with it. And later on, he was just like, this is when he was really young. He was like, he was like, Daddy, I am really sorry about that. He brought it up later, a couple hours later. And it was a cool opportunity to go, like, buddy, it's gone. Let's not talk about it. It's as if it never happened. It's an awesome opportunity for you parents to explain the gospel to your kids. Because if we do the other thing, what we're going to end up doing, guys, is we're modeling how God forgives. So they're going to assume there's a silent treatment. They're going to assume that there's some sort of probationary period. They're going to assume that God is distant for a while. He's not. He's immediately there. He's been drawing you, right? When you come to repent of your sin, he has already been drawing you back. Of course, he's excited, like the prodigal son, you know? He returns, and his father runs to him because he's longed for this to happen. So, guys, repentance should be the habit of every Christian. The reason why I picked this one and not Psalm 51 this time is I wanted to talk about that, that repentance should be habitual. Just like you don't stop believing in Jesus when you become a Christian, you don't stop repenting. They're one in the same motion, by the way, right? So to repent is to turn from your sin to God, right? To believe is to turn to God, right? It's one motion. Believing is turning toward God. Repentance is turning away from your sin. And there's a call here in verse 6 for believers to repent. Let me show it to you. It's not just for unbelievers. It's for believers to repent. Look at verse 6. He says, therefore, like based on this, you know, if you keep silent about your sin, you're going to be miserable. You can confess it, and here's how you do that. And God will immediately forgive you. And then he says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayers to you in a time when you may be found. Who are the godly there? People that need to repent. Right? The context. Who are the ones that need to, to, to turn to God and pray? It's the godly who need to repent. That's our, in Christ, we are both godly and we're sinners. We continue to sin, the Holy Spirit changing us over time and making us sin less and less and repent more and more. But we continue to sin and yet God sees us in light of Christ's perfect righteousness. And so he says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you when he may be found. Guys, the Christian life is a life of habitual repentance. Habitual repentance. Repentance is a lifestyle. Our repentance should be immediate. We should not be as Christians like surprised when we sin and then trying to figure out how to cover it up or deal with it in some, you know, like we're a PR department for some company that's botched something, right? It, it should be not a surprise to us that we've sinned. We should immediately be repenting. He says in verse six, therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach you. Verse 6 there has some urgency, doesn't it? Living in habitual sin, living in sin, is dangerous. Very dangerous for you, okay? Living in sin, sin always wants more of your life, doesn't it? It's greedy for more, right? Sin is a spreading death in your life. And so repentance is running back to the Lord for safety. Look at verse 7. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. That's what it looks like to return to the Lord. Selah. Um, we need to learn, guys, to run to the Lord and repent immediately when we sin. And I've got a diagram about this because why not? Okay, so this is what repentance looks like. It's very simple. So here's the Lord. We drift. We, we slide away. We slide into sin. We fall into sin. This happens a lot. And what we need to do is we need to repent. We just return. Just like this psalm describes. That's what Psalm 32 is describing. Is, you know, 
I was in sin and I returned and I was forgiven and my joy was restored. This is healthy repentance. This is not healthy repentance, okay? So this is, we drift from the Lord, we're in sin, we realize we're in sin, and so we spend, I don't know, some amount of time wallowing in sin, right? Just maybe putting ourselves in some sort of spiritual timeout from the Lord. You know, we sin in some significant way and we think, well, I can't just go right back. That really wouldn't be showing sin to be, you know, serious. I need to take it more seriously. So I'm going to kind of wallow in my sin for a while. Maybe prove to God that I'm serious this time. Maybe, you know, show him that I really mean business. Because if I was to come back, that's going to seem like kind of cheap grace, doesn't it? I just, I'm not taking it. I'm going to wallow for a while, right? No good comes of this, guys. The further we're drifting away from the Lord, the more dangerous spot we're in. And guess what? Like, you're not actually going to live better and show him you're serious unless you're living relationally close to him, right? He's where the power is. Like, I'm going to go do this on my own and prove myself. It's like, I don't know where we get these ideas. I do know where we get these ideas. We get them from the enemy. He's like, great, go for a walk. Take that sin seriously. The devil is really, really evil, okay? Maybe that's obvious. Devil's really evil. Uh, feel free to hate him. Uh, feel free to go, tell him to go to hell. And you can do that. That's the one person you can do that with. <laughs> the devil, guys, wants you to wallow in your sin. What the devil does is he, do, he tries to convince you to sin against the Lord. And then when you do it, what does he do? Oh, well, then he's the righteous one. He's like, how could you? Look at what you've done. You call yourself a Christian? You guys have been there, right? He's taken you in the dungeon, hasn't he? In the torture chamber of condemnation to keep you kind of walking along on this path, right? And you shouldn't. We should return quickly. It's a simple, instantaneous act. Repentance is not a long, complicated process where you prove to God you're finally serious. Repentance is not penance where you do some sort of deeds to make up for it. Repentance is not wallowing. It's not you putting yourself in a timeout. Guys, forgiveness can never be earned through penance. Um, no good will come of your self-imposed timeout. Repentance is a simple, immediate act, you know, where we turn to him, and we need to do it every day. And as we battle temptation, as, as we are finding ourselves sinning every day, different sins in the mind or in our words or in our actions, and we repent to the Lord and we keep coming back to him and returning to him, as, as Psalm 32 says, this can look like a bit of a vicious cycle. Has anyone ever felt that way when you're dealing with like habitual sin, especially of the mind? You ever feel like this is like a vicious cycle, like you're going nowhere? You know, you ever feel like, man, again with this, and you repent. You know, again with this, and you repent. And you just feel like you're going in circles. But if you look at it in the third dimension, I have a diagram. If you look at it in the third dimension, what's happening when we repent over and over again is we're actually moving deeper, guys, into an understanding of the gospel. And we're actually moving into a deeper place of knowing him. Every rotation of repentance is us drawing nearer and nearer to the Lord. We're moving closer and closer to him. Just like in this drill example, you know, repentance with gospel maturity, with growth, doesn't mean less repenting. It means quicker repenting, right? You're repenting quicker each time. You're spending less time away from the Lord relationally. You're drawing closer and closer to him. You're running quicker to the Lord. You know, he says that he's our hiding place. He preserves us from trouble, right? He surrounds us with shouts of deliverance. And the long-term effect of that, guys, of repenting, especially of our thoughts over and over again and making it a habit, 
is that our hearts are changed by that. You know, Proverbs 4 says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And this is one of the ways we keep our heart with all vigilance. When we repent of bitter thoughts and lustful thoughts and anxious thoughts and judgmental thoughts and and thoughts of self-pity and pride, God is transforming our hearts over time as we keep turning to him. Our habitual repentance is also the way we walk closer relationally to the Lord. And when I say relationally, what I'm trying to get out there is that when you fall into sin as a Christian, you are not in any way separated from the Lord. You're actually in him. You're united to him by the Holy Spirit. Nothing changes that, right? So you are in a justification way, in a, a way of being saved. You're not falling in and out of salvation. We don't believe any of that. You come to him for the first time. You're bound to Christ. You have his righteousness. But I'm talking about the felt experience of that, right? I'm talking about the lived relational feeling of walking with the Lord. And the more we repent of our sin, the more we're, we're walking closer to him. Look at verse 8. He's got really cool images here in verse 8 of two different ways to walk with the Lord. Take a look at it. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like the horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. He gives two great images here. He's like, this is two ways we can walk with the Lord. One of them is we could walk with his eye upon us, where he instructs us and we follow and we're looking to his expression. We're looking to his face. And we're, we're wanting to follow him. And it's a nearness, right? The other one is, is he could shove a piece of metal in your mouth and steer you around. Right? Which one do you want? Right? It's clear, isn't it? You know, it, as we learn to develop a lifestyle of quickly responding to the word and the spirit and repentance, the Lord leads us like he leads us with his eye. Take a look at verse 8 again. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you, that the Lord would instruct us with a look, that we'd be so in tune with the Lord that we would be led by him in that way. Isn't that what you want? You know, to sense his lead and to respond to the, the most mild convictions of the Spirit and, and the, the, the quickest responses to his word. Isn't that the way we want to be? We want him to guide us in that way. We don't want to have to be led around by our mouth. Look at verse 9 but not like the horse or the mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit or bridle that will not stay near you. Now, I think we all know as Christians, he will use the bit if that's what we need. Okay, he will, and he has, right? How many guys have had the bit in your mouth? <laughs> okay, he will do that, right? If that's what we need, if that's what we have chosen <laughs> to live with him in that way, the Lord disciplines those he loves. He will put the bit in your mouth if you need it. But wouldn't it be better, guys? Wouldn't it be sweeter? Wouldn't it be more enjoyable to be led in the way he leads in verse 8? That he would teach us with his eye upon us. His eye, that we would yield to his looks. That we would sense his pleasure in what we're doing. And we would sense his displeasure when we're headed in a way, even in our hearts, that's not right. And we would quickly go like, oh, no, 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 no. I want to be back here. Right? That's what it looks like to have a life of repentance. The way we get that is, is by practicing repentance, by yielding quickly to the word, by making it a habit that when we read something in the word, we don't just go like, uh, it probably doesn't mean that in the Hebrew. You know, never liked this book much anyway. Man, Paul's kind of severe. You know, none of that, right? We would read something, we'd, we'd see it as God's word, and we'd want to respond to it, right? That he'd lead us with a look, you know? When you're reading through the word, and all of a sudden you're reading along, and a passage jumps out at you, that's the Lord giving you the look. 
He's like, this one's for you, buddy. And you're like, I don't want it. And then you're like, no, I do want it. That's not right. I do want this. You know, that's to be led, led by a look, to yield quickly to the Spirit's conviction, to, to quickly change when we hear the word. And this whole psalm, guys, just to remind you, is about the path of happiness. Look at verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, you upright in heart. I love that. In a psalm about repentance, he, he describes us as the righteous, those who trust in the Lord and those upright in heart. Like that's how he sees us. And he's like, rejoice in that. You guys, we should be enjoying the gospel a lot more than we are. Amen? Like, you read this psalm and you're like, I get the sense this guy's like really into this, you know? He's shouting for joy. Like, the, the excitement of knowing that like your greatest problem is solved, your sins have been removed, and God has welcomed you into his presence and wants to lead you as a father leads a child. And as we go to the Lord's Supper, we'll see how the Lord can give us this kind of full and free forgiveness. How it can be like, bam, you confessed, he forgave you. How can he do this? The Psalms show all throughout that God is a just judge, that he punishes things like sin and iniquity and, and transgression. So how in one simple act of us confessing our sin and trusting in him can we receive full pardon? Well, this passage, first two verses, are quoted by Paul in Romans 4. And he said that this passage is about the gospel. He said that this is about the person who trusts in Jesus Christ. Because, guys, Jesus experienced the full weight of our sin on the cross. Amen? On the cross, Jesus took all of our sin, our iniquity, and our transgression. And the weight of that sin had its full effect upon him. The misery of the cross wasn't just what was going on physically. The misery of the cross was also the weight of the condemnation of all of our sins. When God convicts us, he's giving us a little taste, but Jesus took in the ocean of the grief that our sins deserve. He took it in as if it belonged to him, as if he deserved it, as if it was his own. When you feel convicted of sin, remember that Jesus felt the full weight of condemnation of your sin. The Spirit gives us a taste of that to lead us home. Jesus received the whole cup and was driven out of his home for us. On the cross, Jesus' bones, like this passage talked about, wasted away through his groanings all day long. Jesus truly experienced the heavy hand of God's wrath upon him. It says in Isaiah that it was the will of the Lord to crush him and to put him to grief because he was taking our sin. Jesus' strength, will he was dried up as in the heat of summer. From the cross, he cried out, I thirst, not just because he was deprived of water, but because he was being deprived of the refreshment of God's presence. Jesus experienced all the waves of judgment so that we could find him as our hiding place to preserve us in times of trouble. Jesus cried out a cry of dereliction so that we could hear shouts of deliverance. And so I'd ask you, are you ready to come home? Let's pray. Father, we're, we're thankful in the ways that you um, coax us away from sin or drive us away from sin, but that you, you draw us away from it and you draw us back to you. And I just thank you, Lord, for the Lord's Supper, that it's a, a moment when we are assured by you that all is well. That as Psalm 23 says, that you set a table before us in the presence of our enemies. 
Well, that we can hear the devil trying to condemn us. We can hear him throwing our sin in our faces. And then we can see that you have set a table before us in the presence of our enemies. As we take the Lord's Supper and just tune him out. That you've assured us that you've removed our sin and made us right with you. Lord, as the prayer in the Book of Common Prayer says, we do not presume to come to your table, O merciful Father, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but in Christ you are always ready to have mercy. We pray, Lord, that you would grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, to eat of the flesh of your dear Son, Jesus, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be cleansed, and that our souls may be washed thoroughly by his most precious blood, and that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Lord, feed us in this time, assure us in this time, and may we leave confident in your forgiveness, joyful in your pardon. Empower us, Lord, to go out. And even as the psalmist here, he's, he's giving a testimony and he's telling people, here's what I did, here's how I got so happy that we would do the same, that we would tell people how we had received mercy in Jesus Christ. And we do it with happy faces, joyful voices. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.